As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Nick Westergaard hosts a great podcast called On Brand. Nick, tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. On Brand features my conversations with smart marketers and agency professionals, as well as those working for innovative brands like Adobe, Ben & Jerry's, MasterCard, Salesforce, and more. Tune in and you'll learn how to tell stronger stories and build better brands. Amazing. Where can people subscribe. You can go to onbrandpodcast.com, find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or search for On Brand with Nick Westergaard wherever you get your podcasts. That's two A's in Westergaard. You heard him. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to David Pepper. David is the author of The Voter File, The People's House, and The Wingman, all of which feature Jack Sharp. He joins me today to talk about his latest book, A Simple Choice. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, David. Thank you. Great to be with you. Happy to have you here, David. I'm going to ask you the the same question I ask everybody as we begin, which is, uh, David, where does your story as an author begin? So as an author of books, my story begins in, and you mentioned the, the, the novels, it begins with the book that was called The People's House. Uh, and I'd always, you know, I'm a lawyer. I've always written decently fine legally. I was a journalist in, in college and in high school. Uh, I'd never written a, a fiction book before, but I'm also a political activist, really frustrated with uh, something called gerrymandering, which is the way that people draw, the way the politicians draw districts to essentially mean they never face a real election. And I would run as a political figure and I ran for office in Ohio. I was in local office. And as much as I talked about it, no one knew anything about it. And it's this massive driver of so much of what's wrong with politics and no one knows anything about it. So my thinking sometime in 11 and 12 was, and you're going to laugh because it sounds like the worst reason to write a novel. I thought, you know, Maybe if I write a novel, a story that shows how bad gerrymandering is, people will finally figure it out. So I started writing a story, but then as you and most people would say, well, 
a novel about gerrymandering, that doesn't sound like a really exciting plot. Um, you know, are they in a room drawing a map? So, so I figured that out pretty quickly too. So that's when I added a Russian oligarch who figures out that, oh, with gerrymandering, he could take advantage of sort of weaknesses in the American political system to get what he wanted. You know, well, I and always that's the said, people's house. And, and, and that book, they took off because of the Russian connection. And that's that was the beginning, basically. I mean, I, I always say when in doubt at a Russian oligarch. Right. You know? Now, I happen to work in Russia. So this was before Russia became such a big deal. But as Trump would say, Russia, Russia, Russia. This there were not a lot of books like this. Then I began writing in 12 and I used a Russian oligarch because I'd worked in Russia. I worked in St. Petersburg for three years in the 90s. So for me, I was thinking, OK, I'll, I'm going to pick a I'm going to pick a, an oligarch who I can describe because I actually met some of these people back in the day. And I didn't pick it to predict anything. I didn't pick it because, you know, everyone else is talking about Russia. I picked it because I was familiar enough that I could draw up a character like that. And obviously, since that time, Russia has dominated. And one of the one of the things that happened in my own writing journey was because I used a Russian oligarch to essentially rig an American election through gerrymandering. My book got a lot of attention beginning in 1718 when some of the tactics my oligarch used were not that dissimilar from what happened. So that's what turned my little effort to talk about gerrymandering into a much bigger you know, set of books that have followed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was slightly ahead of its time, but it sounded like it, the timing was uh, was perfect given you know current events back in those days. But it sounds like you know you mentioned being a journalist in high school and and doing journalism in college. Um, how did you wind up you know going to law school? Because I, I get the sense that kind of writing is um, you know you may, you may have had a passion for it if you if you did it in high school and college. Yeah, and I, you know in high school and college I wrote columns. I did your standard reporting. Um, but, and I went to law school partly because the writing, even though lawyers can become very bad writers very quickly, the, there's a similarity to the, to the work you do in journalism and sourcing that you do in law writing. And so after I spent those three years overseas or going back and forth to Russia, at least, you know, law school made sense for me. I thought I was going to do international law, but along the way, I've always written, you know, whether it was like, again, opinion pieces punchy newsletters. I oh, and, and I would not just hand that off to someone else. I would always be writing my own stuff. You know, I created a, a back when blogs were the big new thing. I created one called Pet Perspectives. And I and I'd always try and write in a more punchy way than you traditionally would see in politics. So when I started writing that book, although again it was the first time I was into creative in fiction, it was kind of similar to writing I had always done or tried to do o- over time, whether I was in politics or law or something else. Right. So it's kind of been something that's been pretty consistent all the way through. Well, I mean, were there any lessons you learned the hard way kind of with that first book, you know, writing that first piece of fiction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I spent I started writing that book in 12, but I didn't really get it out there till the middle of 16. I essentially rewrote the book three or four times because, again, you want to write a story to write a good story. My story was written originally as sort of a political rant. Well, that's not a book. And so as I wrote and got feedback, I figured out, okay, you, David, you may have strong political opinions, but if this is not first and foremost a story with compelling characters, a page-turning plot, no one wants to read about your other opinions. So I, I basically you know, had to learn the process of writing a novel 
through one version after the next, where all of a sudden you mentioned Jack Sharp. He's the main character. You got to make him interesting. You got to give him give him an arc. He's got to have his own backstory. Um, the plot has to be same with the Russian oligarch. You know, I I really had to learn the process. So that first book was really a journey about someone who'd written other ways, figuring out how you write fiction. You know, adding a lot more dialogue than I originally had in it. I mean, it was. So I learned a lot along the way and I, and I, you know, and I was pretty open to critiques, which made me better. And so even if I rewrote that book now, I think it would be better because that book was all about learning how to write a novel. What's funny though, is in some ways of all my books, that book still gets some of the best responses because I think it was such an authentic effort to write a book yeah. by someone who was kind of making it up as he went. But I would say that was in many ways, the most challenging book because I was literally essentially teaching myself how to write a novel when I hadn't before. Yeah. And then, um, you know, just talk to me a little bit about, you know, finding an agent, getting it published. I mean, for a first time author, I know that's not oh, the easiest. I, in my book talks, especially if there are budding writers in the room, I will read out emails and one in particular from a very prominent agent, basically telling me to never write again. It was the most harsh email you've ever seen. And I didn't let it stop me, although it was very depressing. I mean, basically, it was so harsh. It was like, you shouldn't even bother. But then within, within the email, there were enough kernels of actual helpful critique that I took those seriously. And that was one of the times that I rewrote the book. And a year later, I sent that agent, the Wall Street Journal Review that called the People's House the sleeper for political thriller of the year for the year 2016, kind of snarky, but also saying your critique helped me get there. So I have been through, I could write a whole book on the journey of trying to write a book yeah. because in the end, I didn't get an agent on the first book. I didn't get an agent on the second book. I would use a company in Ohio that essentially allowed me to self-publish, but a very high quality self-publish also though published within weeks of being done, which meant my book came out before the Russia plot in the country was unveiled as opposed to after, but it was a success. And so after my first book, became somewhat you know viral i was on judy woodruff and, and pbs i was it was featured in political magazine as their thriller that that predicted the russia scandal the notoriety you know, bill clinton called me saying i just read both your books wow i love your books all that led to some momentum that ultimately got me an agent and got me into the doors of putnam who've been incredibly supportive since but a lot of that happened because the plots of both my first two books have this have had this sort of authentic and you know somewhat bizarre prescience about real politics that's made them interesting and have made readers be interested and and, and it led to a lot of a lot of attention that ended up getting you know, allowing me to break in the door of an industry that I knew nothing about when I started writing the first book I don't even know why I wrote the first book to be honest I just started writing yeah. I had no notion of where it would go and that's sort of one of my lessons to anyone who's thinking about just write your story. Who knows what happens? I didn't even think about it. I just started writing a book out of frustration that a story had to be told along the lines of what I was writing. Yeah. So, I mean, just a few things unpacked there. Uh, I have to know, did that agent who, who gave you that critique ever get back to you after you sent him the, the blurb from the wall street journal? He, he did. He did. Uh, and he kind of, he congratulated me. And of course, I'm still trying to find an agent. So I was like, hey, I've got some other ideas. He still wasn't interested. Um, he, this was short, it, uh, he was a Democrat, apparently, and this was right after Trump won. So 
his email was something like, I'm so depressed about, about the, the election. I don't, I don't even want to think about any more books on politics. So I kind of left him alone. Yeah. And I had already started my second book. And on my second book, I, because of the first book, I did get an agent. We didn't get a publisher. But again, that second book got a lot of attention. And it also got the conversation going with Putnam and the ultimate agent I have. And, and it's been a great you know, partnership ever since. Yeah. Um, but, but I also think it shows you that, again, it's a really tough process. Uh, and if you're an outsider to the whole industry like me, just making up as you go, you're really on the outside looking in. And you can have a book that literally was called The Political Thriller of the Year by Wall Street Journal and not have an agent or publisher ever give it a look. That's what happened to me. But it shows you that if you start writing and the story is authentic in some way, even if that story itself is not the one that gets the agent or gets a publisher, it ultimately, the momentum from that, if it does well, could get you success down the road. That's really been, I was writing for years, um, just writing, uh, just send, just getting it out myself, you know, doing book talks myself. And ultimately the, the path led to some success now. Uh, but, but for years, I didn't even, I, get, I couldn't have told you, I couldn't have named one agency when I started writing that first book. I couldn't have named one agent. I couldn't have, I, I kind of knew the publisher's names, but not really. That wasn't even my purpose. I was just writing a story. And I think my hope is that convinces other people do the same thing. Even if you're not an insider, you ultimately that path. And by the way, maybe, maybe you never even get that. Still tell the story. Because even before I had an agent and even before I had a publisher, thousands of people had read The People's House and got a lot out of it. And that alone, that, that itself was great for me, just having been a writer. When someone reads a book you write, one person, you're excited about it. Yeah. And, and that's how, what I've always felt. What, what's it like getting a call from Bill Clinton? I, I got to know. It was a, so it's a really funny story. So I, and I had met him through politics a few times, but it was a setup to the call that was so interesting. I get a call. This was when, this was when Obama, I be, no, this was when, when Trump was president. I get a call from a New York, a New York area code, not 212, but another one. I, I can't remember the other ones. And the person says, hi, this is so-and-so on the line. Could you wait two minutes? The president wants to talk to you. And my first thought was, which president? Like, this is kind of crazy, crazy. And of course, the answer to that question is, yes, I have. I can wait for the president. And then two minutes later, and I'm thinking, okay, Bill Clinton loves thrillers. This was when he was writing his thriller with James Patterson. Mm. So I thought this has to be Bill Clinton. And next thing I know, and I didn't ask the guy, I just said yes. And I was on hold. And then two minutes later, you know, you would recognize the voice like I did. It's Bill Clinton saying, hey, David, I just I sat down with the people's house yesterday. I've already finished it. I'm halfway through the wingman. I love to talk about your books. I really like them. And we literally spent the next hour plus talking about uh, the books, the plots. So Jack Sharp in those books is a guy who's a political reporter from Youngstown who's in this perfect position to discover political scandal. And so Clinton said, oh, I see what you're doing. You've got a guy who every single book can tell a different story. I said, exactly. And so we really, and, and this was clearly right at the end of Bill Clinton's book writing process of The President is Missing, I think is what it was called. Um, so he was clearly thinking about fiction writing as well. So we had an amazing conversation about not, you know, like we're having, not about politics or all that, about writing fiction because he was doing it and I was doing it. So yeah, it was an amazing hour plus. Uh, and I kept thinking he was going to have to go, but we just kept talking. It was a really fun conversation. And since then, you know, I've been, 
I've been honored that he 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 blurbed my third book and and Hillary Clinton blurbed my fourth book. So they both have become readers apparently of my books, which is obviously exciting. That's so cool. That's so cool. Just to talk to a president about anything but politics, I think yeah. fun, you know. It's probably it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And and it was, you know, he was calling as much he, every you know people know he's a reader of fiction. He really he really uh does that all the time. But he was also calling clearly with his writer hat on because he had just been uh, working through the final parts of that book. Um, and so it was a, yeah, it was a very fun conversation yeah. and, and about, about writing and reading as opposed to just politics as usual. Well, what can you share with us about a simple choice? So a simple choice, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, so my first three books are all kind of in the election space. And I thought it was, you know, given how much controversy there was around elections, it might be time to do a slightly different uh, slant on politics. Uh, a simple choice is, you know, the title kind of tells you a little bit about the story. And I'll just put it this way for your listeners. What would you do if you were given the opportunity to save the life of a loved one who was facing, let's say, a terminal prognosis for cancer? And you were offered as, you know, who you are, you can save this person's life if you do the following things that will save the life, we have the ability to save it. And my guess is most people would think I'll pretty much do most things you would want me to do if I could do that. Well, then ask yourself, okay, now that you've thought about that question, what would the most powerful politicians in America do if they were made the same offer? That's the book. The book is all about a lot of characters in the middle of a time where there's breakthroughs with cancer happening basically being offered what is essentially a corrupt deal. But the deal is not your formal, your, your typical, here's some money, here's some, you know, I don't know, trip. It's, we'll save a relative. Tell us who to save if you do the following. And so the book is basically, that's the simple choice. What would you do? And most characters in the book are faced with that choice. And the truth is, as much as the title sort of says a simple choice, it's not simple. Everyone who makes a decision about that question faces a whole lot of consequences because it's it's a tough it's not a tough choice in one way but the consequences are far more complicated than it sounds so my main character is a very young talented woman from from um, former supreme court from ohio she faces that choice with her own mother but there are some u.s senators who also are put forward that choice that are older so they know people who are sick or, the, or their own wife is is sick so it's a it's a political thriller anchored in a choice that also is around uh, health and, and, and medical ethics that I, I hope for, for readers is both interesting, your, your typical page turner, but layering in a lot of other deeper questions about politics, about ethics that a lot of thrillers may not throw, at, throw your way. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, uh, it sounds fascinating. Um, and I can think of, uh, you know, I, I could think that there would be some, uh, some trade-offs one has to make when making a choice like that, right? Cause yeah. Don Corleone's going to come around asking for a big favor, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and most of my characters are characters who, who have spent their lives being very above board, high integrity political figures, which we obviously right now in our country, we're looking for those. Uh, there's such a suspicion that most folks in politics. So a lot of the people faced with this choice are ones who've prided themselves on integrity their entire life. But this is a proposition they've never encountered before, which is one character in particular. 
they're, they're going through, they're doing a little research. Oh, this guy's never taken money from anyone that would be like a conflict that would, that would make you question what he's doing. But, but now he's faced with a decision. We're here to save your life, the life of your wife. What do you do now? So I'm trying to really push it with people who aren't your, you know, your stereotypical slimy political figure, but these are people with high integrity. But all of a sudden, as you're saying that this is a much tougher thing to say no to uh, for even them. Yeah. And I, a lot of readers have written me since, oh, they did the right thing. I would do what they did. Uh, so it, it, it really, you know, my hope, and I, I've heard this already from readers. You made me really think about this question. Uh, you made me really think about, um, you know, trade-offs to, to truly fraught choices about, uh, you know, living and dying. Well, I mean, it's a great device, a great choice, you know, that you made to, to make the reader um, feel empathy for these characters. You know, yeah. if they can see themselves making that same uh, decision and then they're really invested in the outcome. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah. No, I, I'm excited that, you know, it's funny, you, you kind of, as you write, my, so my initial insight for the book was, was just conversations I had about uh, something you may know about. I didn't know much, that much about CRISPR, which is this very breakthrough gene, gene therapy, gene splicing technique that can, that is making massive progress in dealing with cancer, but also does have, um, if not restricted the right way, ethical, you know, issues to it. That's what sparked me writing the book is, was to intersect that with politics. But as I got into the book, I had pushed this choice forward with enough characters. I thought, okay, let's, let's really use this as a way to invite the reader in to be thinking about the dilemma and how they might respond to it. Mm -hmm. No, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, you know, there's a question that, that kind of, um, came to me as we were, as you were talking to me about your background earlier. Um, you're probably, I think your number, your episode 196 uh, on Uncorking Your Story. Um, so I've done almost 200 of these. That's amazing. And I've and I've talked to dozens of lawyers who have started writing novels. What, what, what's going on there? Like, why? What's the overlap between, um, you know, being a lawyer and then putting on this really creative hat and, right. and doing long form storytelling? Yeah, maybe we're all just inspired by John Grisham. If John Grisham could make a law firm a bestseller, and we all probably know so much about law firms that you're like, wait, you're going to, it's like my idea about gerrymandering. You, you yeah. wait, you're going to make a law firm the heart of a story that becomes a bestseller. So maybe he inspired us all. Uh, but no, the truth is, I do think, you know, some legal writing can be really bad and really dry. But good, you know, but a lot of lawyers are writing all the time. And a lot of them may have chosen to go to law school because they had that hidden writer in them, which can sometimes be destroyed by bad legal writing. But there is a lot of writing in law. So I, I think in a way, it, it, and, it's, and if you're doing a good job writing, the best writers are not turning their writing skill into deadly dull briefs. They are telling stories. You're taking a particular um, plaintiff and you're telling that plaintiff's story or that party's story and the best, you know, the best part of a legal brief would be if you're describing the facts in a way that's compelling for a judge, not just the law. So I think there's some overlap. And, and you know, I joke about bad legal writing. The good legal writing would be good storytelling. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that I wrote, I've recently written a nonfiction book. It's doing quite well. It's called Laboratories of Autocracy. I, I think it's doing well because I use my storytelling mindset as a fiction writer 
And every chapter of my nonfiction book is again about an individual story that teaches a broader lesson that's a nonfiction lesson. So I think maybe the best writers are, including lawyers, they understand that a good story with, with characters and compelling issues is how you get people to read anything, be it fiction or a legal brief that might otherwise be deadly dull. So there, there, there's clearly, you know, there's a lot of writing in the law, a, a lot of bad writing, but my guess is also a lot of good writers that can move into a world of telling a good story, uh, maybe not easily, but with a little time, be able to do it. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Nick Westergaard hosts a great podcast called On Brand. Nick, tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. On Brand features my conversations with smart marketers and agency professionals, as well as those working for innovative brands like Adobe, Ben & Jerry's, MasterCard, Salesforce, and more. Tune in and you'll learn how to tell stronger stories and build better brands. Amazing. Where can people subscribe. You can go to onbrandpodcast.com, find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or search for On Brand with Nick Westergaard wherever you get your podcasts. That's two A's in Westergaard. You heard him. Go subscribe. Yeah, that, that sounds like the right answer to me. Um, but uh, I always like to, to get to know my authors a little bit better, my um, guests a little bit better. One way I do that is through pop culture. So I'm curious, David, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Off the bat, I mean, A-Team. I'm going to sound old here. I mean, I celebrated the A-Team. Um, that was a big one. I love uh, when the plan comes together. Oh, yeah. No, that was – that. I was, like, probably high school, and that was, like, all that crazy – you know, I looking back, like, it was the most incredible battle scenes with no one ever dying, right? I mean, it was, like, this very cleaned-up version of of gunfights. But I, I, I was always into it. You know, I lo- I loved the, you know, they always came up with this crazy plot at the end. I liked, so I liked that show a lot. You know, I, I'll, this is also going to sound strange. I lived overseas a lot of my childhood. So for me, a lot of my favorite TV shows were the only ones that showed up on a Brussels television station in English. So I watched a lot of different strokes. I watched a lot. I, I, you know, one of the only shows that was really popular in Europe that was in English when I was growing up was Dallas and Dynasty. So I probably watched more Dallas and Dynasty than most American uh, kids because it was the only thing in English I could find in Brussels, where I happened to live through middle school. Um, you know, and then you know, typical Friday night, you had the Dukes of Hazard. Now, again, I'm going to age myself, but when I was young, Dukes of Hazard, Love Boat, those were all your Friday night shows, um, and. Um, but I'll say the other thing I was really into, and I still am, like I love watching a whole lot of movies. Uh, and I'm I'm the kind of person who can, if Shawshank Redemption is on, even though I've seen it a hundred times, I will watch it again till the end. Yeah. And I move till the end. And that's, you know, I went to, by the way, I went to Top Gun 2 the other day with my kids. Amazing. Loved it's it. It's such a fun movie. Oh my gosh. It's not like, going to win. It's not going to win any Academy Awards. But it's so, but it's I mean, if you grew movie. up watching, you know, for another example, when I discovered on, I think, Netflix, the Karate Kid series, I, okay. I died and gone to heaven because I was right at the age of the original. And I'm like, wait a second. They really brought back Daniel LaRusso and Johnny. What's his name? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's the same. My God, this is perfect. So I grew up watching a lot of, you know, typical TV, but a lot of kind of goofy movies that. But when I watched Top Gun 2, I was like, my God, they got to make more, more movies like this. Because oh, yeah. as a kid, it was always kind of those sort of over the top sports like karate kid or 
or or you know top gun so so i grew up watching a lot of that stuff so uh your thoughts on iron eagle if you were a top gun fan the wait the old iron eagle remember the movie iron eagle it came out like and, right and was that what was that with lewis gossett jr it absolutely was you know my favorite part of that is what was the it was um the london what was the song he would play when he would get in the there was so remember many. that there were so many there was yeah but there was song. one song that the guy oh, so I, oh. I i liked iron eagle it was good but i love that he get in that and i'm sure you are definitely not allowed to do this but he would get in the plane and he'd play on his speakers like instead of listening he'd be playing like I can't remember the song, but some awesome rock song that oh, would yeah. get them all amped up. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I probably watched that movie maybe 20 times, um, but it's no, it's no top gun. Let's be clear on that. Well, there was one vision by queen that was in there. Uh, there was a song called road of the gypsy. My brother and I, I mean, we really do consider iron Eagle to be Hydrox to, you know, top guns, Oreo. Right. Uh, but Hydrox isn't bad. Uh, Another song was um, Iron Eagle, Never Say Die. Um, yeah, there, there was a bunch. There was a oh, bunch. No, there were a couple of years where that was on cable all the time. And yes, oh, yeah. I was definitely watching. I'm trying to find the song um, because uh, my favorite part was he and I really got into the song. He would play the song while flying. and It was like just, you know, it kind of pumped you up. So so my, my poor kids are stuck with this because early on when I discovered Pandora, of course, one of my channels is Top Gun which leads to all the 80s, you know, movie songs, mm -hmm. you know, from Top Gun, from Karate Kid, you know, all those. So my poor kids, like, they literally know all those songs and they were excited to go to Top Gun too. So that's a little, that's probably more pop culture than anyone heard, but no, no, I definitely no. am a, I'm definitely a kid of the 80s when it comes to movies and TV shows. Well, what about, what about music? It's probably a good segue. What did you listen to growing up? I mean, I honestly was never so into anything particular. I've kind of, you know, that age back then, you know, would have been some combination of the Eagles or Jimmy Buffett or whatever was on the radio at the time. Uh, this is how old I am. Like I, I would not that I'm that old. I'm in 51, but I was there when, um, when you had a Walkman, okay. <laughs> you couldn't listen to songs and I mowed lawns everywhere. That was my, that's how I made extra money. And I would tape record, I would tape record the night before the top 10 on the radio. And I would play, put the tape in the Walkman and then use it for weeks. So I had so many goofy songs memorized because I would literally be mowing lawns with the same tape. And, and at one point I had every word of the Super Bowl Bears shuffle memorized because that was, believe it or not, that made the top 10. It was such an awesome song. So, so at the time, so all sorts of goofy top 10. I'd listen to all that because I was on the radio, but I also, you know, road trips. I love the Eagles. Um, you know, I went to Jimmy Buffett concert. So kind of the whole, I mean, I like, frankly, a lot of country music. So I'm kind of all over. The, and I love, as I said, sort of even movie theme songs. I love, I love listening. So it's kind of all over the map. You ever see Jimmy Buffett live at Cincinnati? Yeah, he, uh. he is a. I think it's because he mentioned the word Cincinnati. It's in the song. It's like seeing so, Jesus in Jerusalem. Oh, once you say that, you've got Cincinnati hooked. So he would do four concerts every year. Yeah. And I went, that was the first concert I went to when, when, um, and by the way, I thought he was old then. This was like 30 years ago and he's still plugging away. So 70, 74. He, I saw yeah. Before. But so that means when I watched him, he was probably no, no older than 50, but he'd already been around for years. But no, Cincinnati, I think partly because, he mentioned Cincinnati in that one song. I think it's Sharks. 
he we've been all over Jimmy Buffett forever. I mean, he does a concert here and it's four straight nights sold out. Yeah. Um, how about uh writing as therapy? Do you do you consider writing to be a form of therapy for you or no? You know, it's funny. I, I have several forms of therapy. So I my day-to-day is I'm pretty involved in politics. And that in this day and age is definitely requires therapy. <laughs> If you're in that, you need a break. And if you don't have one, honestly, over time, it's probably pretty unhealthy. So the two things I think I do as therapy has always been block out time for right. I mean, I do, I work out, and I bike a lot too, which is a huge, frankly, really a good escape, but writing fiction. And, you know, about four years ago, I started painting and it's also been an amazing, you know, I, out of the, kind of like the novel, I just started painting one day. And after about three or four paintings, I was like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. So I have a balance of writing and painting. And so if you ever see me painting a bunch in a row, and I'll post this stuff on Twitter or Facebook, it means I haven't been writing for a couple of weeks. And if, I, if you ever don't see a painting from me for about a month, it means I must be really finishing up something writing because I only have time in life for one of those things. But I'm always choosing, I'm either choosing writing, painting or reading, or I'm, in, or I'm caught up in a book. But between writing and painting, I really do. I do think it is a healthy balance. And one of the things I I say to people, I look back when I was on city council, which I was here in Cincinnati, I was a county commissioner and I did nothing but that. And I look back and I regret that I hadn't figured out to start writing earlier or to start painting. It, It was a mistake to be so much in only one lane. And I'm so glad that I just out of the blue, honestly, stumbled upon writing that first book. It, I don't even know why, looking back, I started. I, I, I mean, I, I know the, the impetus was about gerrymandering, but I just started out of the blue, no background. I did the same thing with painting. And now I'm literally in art shows and, and my paintings get like purchased sometimes. And thank God I just started figuring this out. I wish I'd figured it out a long time ago. And I think my, one of the lessons is just try new things, make it a habit to try new things because you never know what things you actually may be good at or that may be your passion. And I discovered those things a little later in my life than I wish I had it, but I am glad that I figured it out. I mean, it's almost a way of like feeding an inner child inside you, you know, kind of finding new things to do because kids, when we're kids, we do that stuff all the time. It's like growing up is all about trial and error, especially when you're really young. Um, And then there's a lot of creativity um, that we stop at some point in time we socialize. So that's, that's awesome to hear that you just, And you can get into a job like I did, especially in politics, where you kind of don't think you have time for anything else. We'll make the time. That first book I wrote, I was running for office. I would literally carve out time in the morning, early in the morning. I have young kids, early in the morning, late at night. But find the time to pursue those other things. And I look back, I wish I'd done it sooner. And you're right. I would always be doodling. The guy in me who was doodling wanted to do a painting. I just didn't know it. So once I started, it, it took off. But uh, yeah, I just think it's easy to never, as a grown up, as you're saying, it's easy to just think you don't have time or it's not important enough to have those creative outlets. I think it's actually incredibly important that, that you pursue them if you can. Right. I mean, you mentioned being involved in Cincinnati politics. Am I right in remembering, this is the child of the 90s coming out, but um, am, I, uh, am I right in remembering Jerry Springer? Was he the mayor of Cincinnati? Yeah. Jerry Springer was not just the mayor. He was an incredibly gifted political figure, incredibly gifted. Um, he had a scandal at one point, the kind of scandal that ends careers. Yeah. He, he resigned. He owned up to it. And in a very conservative town at the time, he, re-elect, he got reelected the next time because he was so effective. Yeah. 
Yeah. After he stopped being in politics here, he became the local news anchor. I grew up watching him as the Channel 5 NBC news anchor. Ranked number one by so much more than any other station. And that's when he started doing Jerry's commentary, which became part of that show down the road. But he he really built a connection to the city. Now he's famous and he'll he would joke about it. I know him pretty well. Oh, that stupid show. That's all anyone thinks about it. In, in Cincinnati, we do remember um, Jerry was this gifted politician who had a couple rough spots, but came through them. And then he was by far the dominant news anchor of his day here uh, because he had this touch and he had this commentary that was actually always quite wise. Obviously, that also led to this show that that is viewed in this quite negative way by a lot of people. And he makes fun of his show. He's thought he thought about running again later in life. And but every every and he would say, well, if all I knew about myself was that show, I wouldn't vote for me either. But yeah. here's but let me offer something more. But in the end, you know, that obviously that show hampered the ability to run for anything. But, yeah, he was not just in office. He was a very gifted political figure in his time. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he was filming, um, you know, when that show was on uh, here in my town, here in Stanford. He was, uh, he, you know, he's doing Jerry Springer show. Then it was Judge Jerry. And then I think he's gone. But Steve Wolkos is still with us, I think. Yeah. No, but but he's he, he had a knack. I mean, if you if you and I saw this because he would do some things with us. When you would walk if you walk a street with Jerry Springer, it's unbelievable how many people run up to him and want to see him. I mean, he is. You know, I've I've been around with different political figures and other things. Jerry Springer is is so well known from that, and there's a connection that although people look down on that show in a lot of ways, ma'am, if you, if you're out walking the street, Jerry Springer, everyone run up, runs up to him, and he talks to every single person who does. Yeah, yeah. it's it's been an interesting experience seeing him sort of up close as opposed to just knowing him through a show that's somewhat infamous. Yeah. Well, I know we're uh, we're hitting our, our mark here. I have one final question for you, which is if you can go back in time, uh, David, and give some advice to your younger self, what would you tell your younger self? What kind of advice would you give the younger David Pepper? I mean, I honestly think it would be uh, some of what I said earlier. I, I, I would have said um, you you seem to want to write. Don't don't hold back until, you know, later in life. If you've got a knack or not just a knack, but just it's it seems to be somewhat of who you are. There's someone inside you saying, write something, start earlier, even though you don't know anything about the industry of writing, just start writing a story. Um, I wish I'd done it earlier. I think, you know, I think I think it would have been successful earlier. And I think it would have been, you know, it would have been just rewarding in so many ways. And I'm glad I ultimately did start writing. But I think that would be my best advice. The other one is, by the way, it's a very different type of advice, but it's just been this very interesting part of my life is keep up with those you meet because the older you get, and this is for your younger listeners, you just never know who does what and who of the, your network early that you're going to lose touch with. If you're not careful. People go on to do the most fascinating things. And at some point in life, you're close to them and you let, you kind of let life, life sometimes gets carried away and you lose touch. I'll just give an example. I mentioned I was a journalist. I was the managing editor of the Yale Daily News. I had a sports writer my freshman year who was a good writer um, and, you know, a good kid. And 10 years later, I'm sitting around at my city council office and I see on the Internet Epstein 29 named Red Sox general manager. I'm like, wait, is that Theo Epstein? It was Theo Epstein. And I remembered he, he, you know, I, he was a writer, 
and he was a sports writer. And all of a sudden, my sports writer, when I was a 19-year-old, turns out to be the best general manager in, in, maybe in, in history, taking both the Cubs and the Red Sox. So one thing I think people do in life is you just get busy, don't keep up. And I, I knew Theo decently well, but you just, you just never know all the paths that people you know are on. And, and I wish I had done a better job keeping up with a lot of folks that I, that I knew well. But you just, again, it's kind of like I was saying about the job politics. You get so busy in your moment that you don't keep up with people, frankly, that, that, that are going to go and do interesting things. And your life will be more interesting if you keep all those relationships going going forward. Yeah. Yeah. My father always says life is contacts. Um, exactly. So kind of uh, nourish them well. Well, uh, where can people buy a simple choice, David? Uh, the best place to go is, is any local bookstore. And then, um, you know, it, the best place to go if you, if you have a variety of channels is if you go to the Putnam, the Penguin Putnam website, I would just suggest going there and that'll take you to wherever you buy your books, be they eBooks or, or somewhere else. But, but hopefully it's at your local, your local bookstore, wherever you buy your books. And, and like I said, other than that, you know, obviously it's on anywhere where you buy books. But go to the Putnam West, go to the Penguin Putnam website, and there it is with all the different options. All right. And if people want to uh, check you out uh, on a website or social media, do you have an address or some handles? Yes, I'm very active on on Twitter. Uh, this is both going to be the fiction and I warn you the nonfiction political side, uh, but it's at David Pepper. I do sort of a lot of regular whiteboard presentations on politics if you're interesting. So if you sign up for that, you're going to get a lot. I warn you. You can also go to davidpepper.com and you can also follow me on Facebook where I have uh, a, a pretty active Facebook page as well and Instagram. But the Twitter is where you'll get a whole lot uh, and you'll see very quickly. And that's at David Pepper. All right. Very good. David, thanks for uh, letting me uncork your story. It's been fun. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Nick Westergaard hosts a great podcast called On Brand. Nick, tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. On Brand features my conversations with smart marketers and agency professionals, as well as those working for innovative brands like Adobe, Ben & Jerry's, MasterCard, Salesforce, and more. Tune in and you'll learn how to tell stronger stories and build better brands. Amazing. Where can people subscribe. You can go to onbrandpodcast.com, find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or search for On Brand with Nick Westergaard wherever you get your podcasts. That's two A's in Westergaard. You heard him. Go subscribe.